welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, who are known today as the Stockbridge-Munsee community. I'm Nicole Damopolito. I'm Finney Damopolito. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with Mark Dunley speaking with Blair Horner, Executive Director of NYPIRG, about redistricting after the decision by the State Court of Appeals. Then we'll air part eight of The Struggle Continues, a roundtable discussion hosted by Willie Terry. Later on, Mark Dunley sits down with Rich Ring, a botanist with the New York Natural Heritage Program, to discuss how the season impacts local plants. After that, Sina Basila Hickey chats with John Elbaum, Executive Director of the Troy Savings Music Hall, about the year they had. And finally, Andrea Cunliffe heads over to the Troy Farmer's Market to see what goodies they have for the holiday season. But first, here are the headlines. The, the Times Union reports that another top official has departed the city of Schenectady's beleaguered building code office. The department has struggled for years with low morale, an inability to maintain an adequate staffing level, and a call for a makeover in the aftermath of a deadly 2015 fire near City Hall that raised serious concerns about, raised serious questions about the operation. After six years in the position, Andrew Joyce is being challenged for the position of chair of the Albany County Legislature by fellow Democrat Wanda Willingham, who will be serving as deputy chair. Uh, Willingham has cited the need for more collaboration and transparency. The Times Union reports that a congressional subcommittee probing New York's handling of the coronavirus New York's handling of the coronavirus pandemic and the deaths of more than 15,000 nursing home residents is continuing its efforts to interview former Governor Andrew M. Cuomo and top officials who served in his administration. The Gazette reports that the Mohawk Harbor Arena project uh, could break ground in mid-January after receiving key approvals from the Schenectady Board of Zoning Appeals Wednesday night. The approvals were for variances primarily related to parking. The developers plan to build a 2,200-seat ice hockey arena with the capacity expanding to 3,595 for other events, including trade shows and conventions. The EPA has announced that it will begin a review process of vinyl chloride, which is used to make polyvinyl chloride, PVC plastic. Vinyl chloride was classified as a human carcinogen in 1974, which time the federal government banned its use in hairsprays, refrigerants, cosmetics, and drugs. Almost 50 years later, the EPA is evaluating additional restrictions or an outright ban. Wednesday night's Albany Common Council meeting saw several members of the Muslim community voice support for a ceasefire in Gaza. They are asking the Common Council to vote on it after at the December 18th meeting, this year's last one. The state has awarded significant funding for anti-violence, anti-gun violence programs locally. Trinity Alliance of the Capital Region has received $1.73 million for its Albany program and $800,000 for Troy. Albany Medical Center has also received $250,000, which is part of the SNUG program, which uses a public health approach to address gun violence. That's it for the headlines. For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. 
listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute, go to mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call 518-272-2390. Now we turn to Mark Dunley, who sat down with Blair Horner of NYPIRG to discuss the fallout of the state's Court of Appeals uh, 4-3 decision to give the Bipartisan Redistricting Commission opportunity to redraw lines for the 2024 congressional elections. We're joined by Blair Horner, the Executive Director of NYPIRG, the New York Publication Interest Research Group. Uh, earlier this week in a 4-3 decision, the state's Court of Appeals many people say, gave a gift to the Democrats and that they uh, decided that the uh, so-called independent redistricting commission will have another shot at uh, redrawing congressional district lines uh, in time for the 2024 election. Um, Last time around, the court had held that uh, the process which ended up in the legislature was in fact gerrymandered and didn't meet the constitutional requirements and the court ordered uh, an outside expert to draw lines uh, and resulted in quite a few more Republicans winning than the Democrats had expected and actually appears to have played a role in, uh, at the federal level in shifting control of the, the House of Representatives uh, from the Democrats to Republicans. So, so Blair, how important uh, is this uh, decision and is this good law? Well, um... It's a very important decision because the path to who the Speaker of the House is may easily be running through New York. Uh, There are six districts that the Cook Political Report has identified as uh, marginal. In other words, it could swing one way or the other. Two in Nassau, three in the Hudson Valley, and one in Syracuse. And, you know, depending what happens with the lines could determine whether or not the, the last name of the Speaker of the House is Jeffries or Johnson. Uh, so it's tremendously important. Now, again, we don't know what's going to happen, right? So that's that's always the trickiest part of these things is speculating on what could happen in the future. Uh, but it's hard to believe that the Democrats won't try to do something to their own advantage uh, drawing the lines. Um, uh, otherwise, they would have just left with the, left it with the status quo. Now, you're right. The court decision, uh, the Court of Appeals made the technical argument that the state constitution requires that the independent redistricting commission be in the driver's seat in terms of coming up with the new district lines. And as a result, decided to kick the case, uh, the decision back to them about, you know, giving them another chance to come up with the lines that they couldn't get done in 22. Whether or not it's good or bad law, who knows? I mean, it's based on a fatally flawed (laughs) section of the constitution, which we can talk about whenever you want. So what, what exactly is this? you know, commission, and is it evenly divided between the Democrats and Republicans? And how likely is this commission going to come up with um, lines that they can agree with, um, but which also, you know, the Democrats want to favor them? Yeah. I mean, it's it's um, the so-called, that was a good way you described it, Mark, the so-called independent redistricting commission is really a bipartisan redistricting commission, uh, 5-5, Democrats, Republicans. And um, it's modeled on the dysfunctional state board of elections, uh, which also has uh, the political parties in charge. 
uh, and uh, they can come to agreement on things that, that are not consequential, uh, but often gridlock on things that are. And I would expect the same thing would happen here uh, because the stakes are so high. I mean, it could, e as I mentioned earlier, it could easily be that the control of the House turns on what happens in these races. And that has national and international implications. I mean, Speaker Jeffries is going to view the issue of the Ukraine differently than Speaker Johnson does. So <clears throat> the stakes are enormously high. It's hard to believe that the, the political parties are going to decide to just cut a deal. But that would be the way that they could figure this out, I suppose, is if both parties cut a deal uh, and then uh, the IRC uh, essentially blessed it. Technically, the Independent Redistricting Commission drafts the lines. They get a couple by a couple opportunities to do that, but the legislature ultimately uh, votes on what happens. So last time, you know, the IRC basically, surprise, surprise, divided along party lines, and when it got, you know, to the state legislature, you know, the Democrats, you know, wrote it in a way to give them a big edge, and, and it's what's known as gerrymandering. How do they avoid that type of situation again, and particularly then having a court once again intervene and say, once again, you guys you're not following what was laid out in the Constitution? Well, the, the technical problem last time was that the commission did not submit a second set of maps to the legislature. And so the legislature said, well, time's up. We have to get these lines done. And that was the technical issue that led the court to argue that the lines had to be drawn by an outside expert. And this time, I don't think the Democrats will make that mistake. If the uh, the commission can't come to an agreement, I think they'll ask the court to force them to do it. <laughs> and uh, and if they don't, because there's really no penalty provision, it's not like people go to jail. And if they don't, then I, I guess the court then would direct the legislature to sort of pick up steam or, they, or, or whatever they would do. But it seems hard to believe that there'll be a kumbaya moment between the two major political parties. And if there's not, it's hard to believe there won't be litigation uh, that comes out of this. And, you know, the, the situation now helps incumbents and hurts challengers, technically, because people don't even know necessarily what districts they're in if they want to challenge, whereas incumbents will be running as incumbents no matter where they live. Though I always do point out that there's actually no residency requirement uh, as to what congressional district uh, that you um, run for, uh, I guess nationwide, but, but certainly in New York State. You mentioned before that um, certainly some in the seats in Long Island, some in, out in the, uh, the Hudson Valley, uh, possibly one or two out in uh, Central New York might come and play. What, what are, you know, particularly in the Hudson Valley, you know, being more local, you know, how this, for instance, both Malinaro and, and Ryan newly elected, um, both relatively close elections, are they the ones that considered possibly at risk from the redistricting? Yeah, I mean, the Cook Political Report identifies three in the Hudson Valley, Representative Lawler, Ryan, and Molinaro, all won in, you know, extremely close races in 22. So any tinkering around the edges of those districts could make a big difference. It's also going to be a presidential election year, uh, which probably will help Democrats, uh, but who knows? Um, and so, but those are three of them. And as you mentioned earlier, in the, when you set this piece up, you know, because of New York's vote, the way it went, I mean, the, the lines were supposed to be drawn in a way that the Democrats would get 22 out of 26 of the districts. They ended up with 15. That's the margin uh, for Speaker Johnson uh, to be controlling the House. 
Now, in recent years, New York, uh, you know, has moved its primaries uh, relatively, well, much earlier than previously, rather than September, you know, now in June, which requires, I think, petition to start, you know, maybe uh, April or so to get the candidates on the ballot. So it only gives maybe three, four months for this process to, to, to play out, and then there's also, as it was last time, the potential for lawsuits. Um, how is that going to impact upon other things the legislature should be doing, like adopting a state budget? <laughs> well, I think it complicates it for sure. Uh, I think the redistricting fight will cast a shadow over the session, no doubt about it. But with Democrats firmly in control of both houses, I don't think it will gum up the works too much uh, because the wild card will be what does the governor choose to do. And if they're all sort of in this of the same mind as to how to approach this problem, I assume it will gobble up <clears throat> bandwidth, but I don't think it will necessarily uh, derail uh, movement on the budget process. So you never know, right? I mean, somebody could use, the governor could decide to use her leverage on the redistricting deal to extract something in the budget process. She showed that last year. But I, given that they're all on, supposedly anyway, they're all on the same team. I mean, they definitely were all on the same team. I would think that this won't take up too much time and, and space, uh, but it will have an impact uh, because there's not that much time. As you mentioned, they, they want to get out of here to go campaign, the, the legislators do. And that means the budget is really going to be the big, uh, the main event for the session. So we only have about a minute left. So A, you can answer anything you want, but B, you know, average voter listen to this. How, how can they actually have any impact upon this whole process? Well, there will be there, there will be some sort of public process, whether or not the commission does it. Uh, they don't necessarily have to because the time is so truncated. Uh, but the legislature, these are bills that ultimately have to be passed. And so, you know, the uh, the way for again, however, the listeners view, view, uh, view this issue uh, the the people that should hear they should hear from are the state senators and the state legislators that represent them, and to tell them whatever people want to say, I would urge that they put that all the New Yorkers push for a truly independent redistricting commission because the problem that's existing in New York is based on a fatally flawed scheme devised by former Governor Cuomo ten years ago, and we've been living with the consequences ever since. We've been talking with Blair Horner, Executive Director of NYPERG, um, and this has been Mark Dunlay for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. If you would like to reach out to your state representative or senator, you can find their contact information on uh, nyassembly.gov or www.nysenate.gov. Next up is The Struggle Continues, a roundtable discussion hosted by Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Willie Terry. Our people learn about Africa and learn about the struggle and learn about uh, who we are, where we come from, our relationship with Native people and all kinds of other people in the world and the great contribution we made to the world. The, it, by us telling people ourselves and going out spreading it like that and talking wherever we can about it. But the school teachers, most of them went to the colonial schools and, and, and colonists, and they don't know it themselves. Right. Okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, on, on that, uh, I want to uh, thank you, uh, Mikasa Dava. Uh, and one other thing. I want to say, uh, Carlos, you said a minute ago about the youth were going to do this. Mm -hmm. And I thought about, uh, what's that uh, freedom saying named Dad in New York? Uh, what are you talking about? Matt Jones? Yeah, Matt Jones. Mm -hmm. Remember Matt Jones' son? 
I'm your child, sit on my knee. Uh, let me tell you how we got started. It all started a long time ago in the city of a Greensboro. It was the student nonviolent coordinating committee. And said, I'm sure you're say, Grandpa, Grandpa, Charles, who was in that movement? Who was out there? Let me see, let me see. I remember a long time ago. No. Things were mighty hard. Up jumps a freedom fighter named Jim the Heist. I remember a long time ago. But then it said, up pops a freedom fighter whose name was Charles Sherrod of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And then talk about Jim Foreman and and Ella Baker just called different names. Ella Baker, James Foreman. And we were, and that was in that song. You were explaining SNCC to your grandchildren. So today we ain't singing it, but we explain it to our grandchildren oh. and to our great grandchildren. Yeah. Right. And to the children that will come ten generations from now. Right. So we yes. have to tell that truth to the yes. people because we're in a state of liberation. And Dr. King always talked about how we were blind. And many of us are walking around here blind. We don't see the revolution in South and Central America, in Africa, in the Congo, and, and in Palestine, and liberation movements and people fighting all over the world and the crimes of imperialism and how they killing and committing genocide and dropping bombs all over the world, killing leaders like Muammar Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and Martin and Malcolm and many, many others. And that uh, we have to tell it and we have to try to put our sight to people and, and put some ear cleaning ears out where the information mm -hmm. go in the head and un unscrew their tongue to the top of their mouth where they can speak it. All right. All right. All right. And uh, All right. Uh, I think I asked almost of my question, but I really want to have a follow up to this. And um, that's Carlos or Angel, you got any last minute things I want to say? Yes, I want to say with Ella Baker. What way? He had a question. Okay, what's the question, beloved? Oh, no, no. I'm just saying y'all got any last minute things that y'all want yeah, to say. Yeah, I got something to say. I like uh -huh. to say what uh, Sister Ella Baker, Mama Ella Baker said, that whatever level the people are in, we all could contribute to the brothers in the streets, to the brothers in jail, to the brothers in college to the lost, to those who have to be found, that they could all contribute for the liberation and, and colonialism and anti-imperialism right here in the belly of the beast. As Jose Martin said so many years ago, in the belly of the beast, and we are living it now, and we're seeing it. And then the other thing I want to say, just like the brother Dada said, that all empires don't last forever. And if you choose not to deal with the people, and you choose to spend billions and billions of dollars and not feed the people, and people are sleeping in the streets, they're in jail, they're hungry, no housing, throw the people out of housing. You got to pay for it. It's almost a sign like the Roman Empire when they didn't get food and education, they were closing the school and privatizing with charter schools that we have now. We're looking at that. Maybe some people are scared to see the truth. Because they say that the truth will set you free. That's the only thing I can say. Thank you, brother. All right. Uh. All right. Angel, anything? 
Uh, yeah, just uh, just uh, I, I could listen, I could listen to uh, a Baba Makasa all day. <laughs> just, and and I don't say that for a lot of the heads that you see in a video screen. So definitely appreciate that. Um, just want to just want to say uh, just like what uh, Baba Carlos, A.K. and Brother Africa said. Yeah, the end is coming. And we have to let as many people as possible know that end is definitely coming. The end of empire, the end of imperialism, the end of oppression. And for those of us that know, our next job is to prepare for what we need to do after that happens. We got to be prepared. I mean, we have to understand there has to be free food distribution, free universities, free housing, and everything that we need to live as human beings on this planet to be free. And thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, Baba Mukasa. All right. And thank you, brother. Brother, I'm going to just share that. Thank you, brother. Thank you for sharing as we communicated after so many years, and I'm so happy. You don't know that I've been looking for you for years until right. I finally got the number right. from an old time that lives in New York. But I feel relieved now. My heart is, is uh, shining with that phone that I gave to right. Mama. Ella Baker, and all of us that are here that are struggling, that we're still here in this planet. We ain't ancestors yet. We have to teach. We have to teach the children. We have to save the children. Because that's our future. All right. And, uh, thank you, Brother Mikasa Dada, again. And um, this is Brother Mikasa Dada, who's a civil rights icon. Power, black power, black and, power. <laughs> Also, long live Africa, long live, long live Africa. South, Central, North America, long live all the freedom fighters, death to imperialism, death to America, death to Zionism, <laughs> death to Israel, Viva Palestine, Viva Hamas, Hamas. Right. And don't, don't hang up yet, uh, don't go off yet. And I just want to say uh, also uh, Carlos Dolfa, who's uh, also an icon. You know, in, in the civil rights movement, who was there at Reservation I just keep quiet. It's the human rights movement. <laughs> he said, at the human rights movement. All right. That's right. That's and, right. And Angel Martinez, who's uh, my son. I'll say that he's also a professor teaching the right history. And they might not like it, but he's teaching the right history to the students. Good. I'm here teaching. Right. That's yes, he is. Yeah, I want to come everybody. to your school, man. Invite me to come to your school and speak. Beautiful. Thanks I gotta you. do that. We gotta do that. We're gonna try to bring you here. We're gonna come to you. We're gonna come. Go down and get the plane ticket right now. And tell the school they gotta pay me to come. Go get the plane ticket tomorrow. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm bag already packed. I'm gonna be like snake people. Travel with nothing but a toothbrush. <laughs> Don't worry about. We are all in the shoestring, <laughs> but we struggling, brother. I'll call you back this week. Yes, sir. I'll call you yeah. back this week as we always do. But you always invite me and make me. If you would like to listen to the entire uh, roundtable discussion, you can find it on our website, mediasanctuary.org. For those just tuning in, I'm Nicole Damopolito. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P, 98.9 FM Schenectady, and W-O-O-A-L-P, 106.9 FM Albany.
and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. With winter's official start only a week away, we now turn to Mark Dunley, who spoke with Rich Ring, a botanist with the New York Natural Heritage Program, to discuss how the season impacts local plants. We're talking to Rich Wing, who is a botanist with the uh, New York uh, Natural Heritage Program. And as we begin the formal winter on the uh, solstice, thought it would be interesting to see, you know, how that impacts upon, you know, different plants. But uh, Richard, maybe just give us a brief introduction. W what do you do for the New York Natural Heritage Program? Hi, Mark. Um... Well, I'm chief botanist there, and what we do as an organization, we're a program of uh, the SUNY School of Environmental Science and Forestry, and we work to facilitate, facilitate excuse me, uh, conservation of all New York's biodiversity. And myself, I work on plants and particularly have an interest in rare plants. Um, so we, you know, there's, gee, there's nearly 4,000 different uh, species and and subspecies of plants in the state of New York. And um, most of them are doing very well, but some of them are rare more recently or have always been rare. And we work to conserve those. Now, you and I actually both live at a place called Common Farms, sort of an intentional community, right at the beginning of the Rensselaer uh, Plateau on the uh, eastern edge of the um, Hudson Valley. What are some of the rare um, plants that people might not be aware of that's on the Rensselaer Plateau? Um, gee, as far as rarities on the plateau. Um, or, or what, yeah. what dominates up there? Um, well, the Rensselaer Plateau is sort of interesting here in the Capital District because in some ways the floor is much like the Adirondacks. So you get, because of the elevation, you get species of that like it cooler and sort of we call more boreal species or northern affinity species. Um, and so you get more areas of um, northern hardwoods and um, and conifers up there. And in general, species of a northern affinity, there are lots of interesting wetlands, including bogs and poor fens. Um, so it's, it's a little bit like taking a trip to the Adirondacks that's right outside our door. What are some of the other uh, interesting uh plants just in the capital district in general oh gee there's there's so many um you know uh well the diversity of new york's plants is is really great uh, something that a lot of people have an interest in, interest in um that don't necessarily realize we do have native orchids in the state of new york um and a few here uh at the edge of the rensselaer plateau the lady slipper orchids and um, some of those that are rare, actually, um, you can take a look for this time of year, such as the putty root orchid. It's a perennial and puts out its leaves, which actually overwinter and photosynthesize through the winter. And so now is a good time to look for those. Um, and there are a few spots um, for those in the state of New York. Any, any in particular capital district place to look for them? Yeah, they're rare. I'm trying to think if I know any known sites for that one in the state of New York, but 
Historically, there were a lot more, you know, the overpopulation of deer that we have here makes it hard for orchids. They tend to be favorite food um, of a lot of deer species. Um, but yeah, as in, well, um, as we're coming up, as you said, on the Christmas season and the solstice holiday season, um, uh, a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of evergreen plants and cultural traditions around, you know, looking for the energy of the sun in the form of green things, even as we're losing the sunlight. Um, so there's something called Christmas fern, which is an evergreen fern. Actually, there's a number of evergreen ferns. If you go out into the woods, you'll see those this time of year. Of course, um, a lot of traditions dating back, you know, um, thousands of years bring in conifer tree the conifers keep their leaves over the winter their needles into the home to bring a little bit of that um, same spirit and if you driving around and um, in swamps or marshes this time of year you'll see a bright flash of red sometimes and that's uh holly or I'm, I'm sorry uh winterberry that's in the holly family that grows in swamps around here. And um, some people collect those and bring them in. It's a bright, bright red color. All the leaves are gone, but the berries really stand out this time of year. Yes, we have some in our backyard. My wife's about to collect some to uh, put on our, our, our on our mantle. Um, you know, what, what are some of the changes that, you know, plants have to go through during, during the winter? And is there, uh, you know, anything people might be thinking about in terms of either helping some of the things in their own neighborhood or, or plants that they try to cultivate? In most plants, uh, not all, but most plants around here are perennial. And this is their time to rest and sleep and survive on the food that they made from sunlight over the course of the year. So, you know, of course, we know that trees overwinter and our lawn comes back up in the spring because, you know, they're resting underground. But most of the plants we see, um, they're storing their sugars and and coming back up in the spring. Although some uh, plants, obviously conifers, continue all winter long uh, with their green material photosynthesizing. And some trees like aspen actually photosynthesize in their bark um, and, and make a little bit of energy that way. Um, but generally, it's, you know, just like for people, it's a time to rest for plants. What are some of the changes we've seen as we head into winter, um, you know, with plants due to due to climate change up here? Um, it's hard to separate and to measure um, climate change because, it's, of course, it's happening and it's been happening, but it's hard to attribute any one thing um, to well, climate change. People in say maple syrup, for instance, has been one of the things that has been impacted that has really changed. You know, granted, maple syrup comes more at the end of the winter, but it has changed when the sap runs or don't run. Absolutely. Um, that season has been getting earlier and in some cases contracting and 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 being more unpredictable and harder for um, for for maple syrup producers to predict when the sap will be running. Um, of course, that's a reaction um, to to that's the sort of we're tapping into literally the process of moving all that energy, those sugars that they're stored over the winter up into the trees, uh, upper parts and branches so they can produce leaves. And the timing of that as um, 
you know, has gone off. And actually walking through a vacant lot on my way to work today, I saw some plants and flowers, some tiny little uh, mustard family plants and some chamomile that are not native to the area, but uh, we're reacting to the warm weather we've had recently and actually flowered out of season. I would also imagine that, you know, say we get a January thaw that rather than last than three or four days, you get two weeks or something of really warm weather. Does that, you know, send a wrong signal to, to some of the plants and they start to get spring when it's not? Yeah, certain plants are more um, liable to do that than others. Um, but, and, you know, their plants are resilient. Um, but we saw actually a lot of dieback this past spring um, when we had warm weather in early spring and things started to, to come out and they had a very late hard frost. And some hickories and, and other trees, you can see the frost damage. Of course, they'll survive on their reserves for one year of that. But that's one sort of thing happening with global warming is not just the warming, but also sort of the chaos and the lack of predictability these are plants that have been here for thousands of years and adapted to a certain set of conditions that, that are certainly changing. So we have just under yeah. a minute left. I was going to ask you, you know, is there a particular favorite thing you look for during the winter season? Well, I love seeing that flash of red of the winter berry in the swamps. And I, if I can get to it, I like to go and collect a few of those. And I keep my eye out, of course, noticing what is still green this time of year? Mosses, which I haven't mentioned yet, are still green and photosynthesizing all winter long as long as they're not covered in snow. And there's more and more of that as things get warmer. Um, and Christmas ferns and, you know, you can notice more fruits that are still out, like the bittersweet fruits that are, that are blooming here along the side of the road. Rich Wing uh, from the New York Natural Heritage Program. You guys have a website? It's nynhp.org. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hard to believe winter isn't actually here yet, but just, but just remember that we're just like perennials. As long as we get what we need, we will endure these hard seasons. The website again for the New York Natural Heritage Program is www.nynhp.org. You ready for winter, Vince? I am, because I thrive in the cold. <laughs> Some snapdragons I just heard. Actually, if you plant them in the colder seasons, it's actually better for them. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, now we'll move on to John Elbaum, the executive director of the Troy Savings Music Hall, who discusses the year of shows they had in 2023 with our own Cena Basila Hickey. Nestled in downtown Troy is the incredible Troy Savings Bank Music Hall, offering a full calendar of events. And as we wind down in 2023, we asked the hall about their notable moments in 2023. And so I'm now joined by the Troy Savings Bank Music Hall Executive Director, John Elbaum. Welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Great to be here. It's great to have you. So when you think of 2023 at the Music Hall, what comes to your mind? Uh, really a great year for us in a lot of ways. Just a lot of exciting things happening. Um, some terrific shows artistically, um, exciting things going on with, with the building itself. And uh, 
really some great relationships that we've been developing within the community. So a really positive year for us after, you know, several pretty darn hard years uh, with the pandemic and the recovery from that. So it was quite a nice bounce back for us. So speaking of that, when you look at the art patronage at the moment, how is the attendance compared to other years? Well, at the risk of <laughs> uh, putting the kibosh on things, it's actually been really strong. Our, I think this may be our strongest fall season ever, actually. Um, wow. Really incredible. I think it's a combination of people being eager to get back out, being more comfortable getting back out, and being in an environment where it's okay, depending on what protocols are important to you, you can be comfortable using or not using any personal safety devices. Or, And it's just, I think people have become acclimated to the changing conditions and, and are eager to partake of, of live events again. That's great. Yeah. And the Troy Savings Big Music Hall is also very much engaged in the arts and education of the area. I know that we've really at the sanctuary benefited from that. So what kind of programming um, have you been, has the organization been involved in this year? Uh, really getting that ramped up again now, uh, that has been a little bit of a longer burn in terms of cycling those programs up. But uh, we've got some exciting uh, percussion workshops and movement workshops in coordination with uh, uh, Troy City School District uh, and uh, working with um, charter schools as well, uh, starting to work with Lansingburg a little bit, which is great. We've been trying to work with them for a while. Um, we've got our roster of teaching artists that uh, are really, really uh, fundamental to providing the kinds of content that we want to. And we're looking forward to bringing you know, those students into the building in September, I guess it was October, when we had the uh, ukulele player, Jake Shimabakuro. We did a ukulele workshop before the show that was just wonderful. And then uh, next week, we've got Mark O'Connor, the great fiddle player, and we're going to do a little fiddle workshop led by uh, Lucy Nelligan. Uh, and Mark said he might stop down for that. So that's another way we can kind of provide some enrichment and just some engagement with the community. And it's it's really well received. So I'm, I'm glad we're able to do that. Why is it so important to be bringing those resources to young people and maybe specifically in this area? Very much so. I think, you know, schools all over are challenged, but I think particularly in many, in many of the Troy schools, there just aren't the resources available. And, uh, you know, I know the, the budgets are tight and curriculums are difficult. So if we can be a part of providing, you know, enrichment to these students, uh, it's it's a really fundamental part of the way we want to be engaged with the community. You did mention that there was something happening this year with the building itself. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, um, we were fortunate uh, to get funding uh, for a project which will help renovate parts of the building and allow us to make it into a more programmable space. Um, if you're familiar with the building at all, you know the concert hall is actually on the third floor of the building. So there's a lot of building that isn't being used at the moment, um, and we want to make that productive and programmable. Uh, so uh, we were able to get funding from the New York State Council on the Arts, as well as uh, the uh, some of the ARPA funds that were available to the city and through Empire State Development to uh, facilitate these projects uh, and will really give us some exciting new spaces to program 
and provide a venue for community events and other nonprofit fundraisers, those kinds of things. But, you know, the music hall is a wonderful, amazing space, but it's it's fairly large. So a lot of the artists that we encounter and, and that I encounter as I'm trying to figure out programming just don't really work in a space that large. So in, if we have a little bit smaller space, a more intimate space, uh, it'll allow us greater flexibility in terms of the kinds of things we're bringing into the into the building. You work with a wonderful team of people. How do you come together and look at your programming? What do you what do you look for? You know, that's getting to be very, very difficult. Um, you know, that's, I guess, my primary one of my primary responsibilities, and I'll be attending sort of an annual conference that happens uh, in New York City uh, next month in January um, to meet with agents. But I'm in contact with agents and always looking, researching different artists. Um, but the sort of the in the commercial side of things, everything's becoming very kind of niche oriented. So, you know, hugely popular commercial artists are, are rare. You know, there aren't that many Taylor Swifts around and the, the economics are, are very challenging, frankly, for sort of those mid, mid-tier artists who play, you know, 500 to 2,000 seat uh, venues. Um, and diversity has been a real um, focus for a lot of the programming that we're bringing in. We just had the Mariachis de Herencia here uh, last month, which was just a wonderful show. Um, we've had, you know, Indian music, uh, lots of blues and jazz, which of course we're, we're well renowned for, um, and more to come on that. But, um, we're trying to slice down into all of these different, uh, communities of music lovers and, uh, try and find things that can kind of appeal to a broader, a broader segment. Uh, but it's, it's very much more an art than a science. Um, and there's so much out there. There's just so much talent, so many wonderful performers and helping them find an audience is, is kind of a, an important role for, for us. Um, you know, we're, we're at risk for the shows that we present. Um, so we, you know, we, we risk our, our financial resources to be able to present these artists and hopefully the community supports that. Um, but we think it's important to, to showcase this great talent. Absolutely. So we're recording this on December 14th. We have just a couple of weeks left of the year, but your season is not over. So what's coming up? Uh, we just announced a couple of really great shows. Uh, Joshua Redmond's coming back. Uh, I was just saw a poster it's right outside my office. He was here, I don't know, probably 25 years ago, and he looks like just a young kid, <laughs> but he's coming back. Uh, he's just terrific. We love him. Wynton Marsalis is coming back. Uh, great comedian Hannah Berner is, is coming. Uh, Gaelic Storm with the High Kings. Uh, Gaelic Storm's never played here. High Kings have been here, but that should be just a an awesome night. Uh, and then some fun stuff. We've got a, a Taylor Swift tribute, you know, for why not, you know, do that too. Um, uh, and then we just announced our uh, Lift series, which is a really cool series that we're doing in collaboration with Organ Colossal. Uh, led by uh, Sam Torres and uh, Sofia Vastek, uh, who helped curate that that series for us. And uh, that's where the audience is actually seated on stage with the artists. So it's a very limited capacity. There's four programs in the series. And so we just announced that. And if you want to find out more about that, you can go on the website. 
but it's it's really cool. It's a fun experience for both the artists and the audience because you get to be on stage, which is cool. <laughs> People like that. And then the artists, you know, have, have a, a very intimate experience and they're able to dialogue and if they want to do that. John Elbaum, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Where is the best place to learn more information about the Troy Savings Big Music Hall? Well, if you're on social media, which I'm not so much, uh, you can go on Facebook or Instagram and uh, find out more. Of course, our website is TroyMusicHall.org, and we've got all the info you need uh, right there. Thank you. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, um, thanks to the listeners for, for their support and keep supporting live music and live culture wherever it is. It, it's really important, and uh, I don't want that to get lost in all of the nonsense that's happening around the world these days. It's an important part. It keeps us human. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a wonderful pleasure, privilege to experience live acts and artists. If you would like to enjoy a live show, the Sanctuary for Independent Media will be hosting an evening of Soundworks by Lisa Schoenberg and Nina Isabel with Brian McCorkle. Lisa Schoenberg will be presenting a body of four new spatialized Soundworks that are the culmination of old growth playback, which asks us how we can listen in the present to speculate about future old growth soundscapes and our role in them. Hudson Mohawk Magazine's Andrea Cunliffe brings us to the Troy Farmers Market and samples some of the seasonal special offerings this holiday season. The market offered specialty food from local farmers and producers this holiday season. Holiday season is upon us, so I made my way over to the Troy Farmer's Market to see what was on offer for the holidays. Beautiful cheeses here. Yeah, Cricket Creek Farm in Williamstown, Mass. Uh, it's right across the border at the Five Corners in the Berkshires. Your cheeses are really interesting. You get Maggie's Round, which I've had. I've never had Tabasi. I've had Hillsale, and I think I've had Berkshire Bloom as well. These are lovely. What makes these so special? We use non-homogenized milk in all of our uh, cheeses, and our softer cheeses are aged and pasteurized just a little bit, and then our hard cheeses are um, raw. And how crazy is it to wrap up a round of cheese and hand it to someone for Christmas? Is that a crazy idea? Yeah, I don't know if it's too crazy. I think it's pretty special. You get to have something wrapped in paper versus plastic. It makes a crickling noise, and it just adds a little extra sensation to it. And it's yummy. Yeah, it's super yummy. Well, if you're going some, somewhere for dinner or for a cocktail party or just a drinks party at Christmas, it's nice to bring a little gift, and this would be superb. Yeah, oh yeah. The Berkshire Bloom is a great one to bring to a, a cocktail party. goes great with some wine and some apples. Really yummy. Cricket Creek Farm, and you're here every Saturday. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What have we got here? Oh my goodness. Yeah, so we've got uh, Fury's olive oil. So what's really neat about our olive oil is all of our olive oil is hand-picked. We cold press it once and we can it all in the same day. Comes right from the Peloponnese of Greece. My boss has family and they've been making olive oil for decades now. It's beautifully oh, packaged. Oh, thank you so much. Would make a great Christmas gift. Yeah, for right sure. Now. Oh, can I have a taste? <laughs> oh, of course. Mm. Oh my gosh. Oh, it's so, so good. The texture is amazing. 
What is this? These are olives. They're oh, like, they're the olives. Yeah, they're like Kamala olives, but these are Kalaman olives. What is the difference? The difference is these are less bitter. Oh, and then you have different size containers? Yep. So you could, oh, wouldn't it be fun to have this in your stocking? Yeah, for sure. Lovely, lovely. And what is this? This is Greek Mountain Tea, also known as Ironwort. So basically it's good for digestion, inflammation, helps with arthritis. You just throw a, a few flour and stem into a pot, boil it for about 15 minutes, and then you're good to go. Oh, lovely. <laughs> these are little jars. Are yeah. these? Oh, this is... Oregano. No, you have some... So these are olive wood boards, and they're made out of sustainably sourced trees that are no longer fruiting on our land. Thanks so much. Yeah, we'll see you. So You're much. here every weekend. I am here every weekend. I see a big sign that says yum. <laughs> Where am I? I'm at what booth? Saratoga Spicery. Tell me about how you get involved with this. I actually was in the museum world before this. I took a very sharp turn into the spice world, uh, but just fell in love with the freshness of fresh ground spices. You do a nice blend. Well, we started out doing your typical, what I call pantry blends, and then my partner, Enrique, said, well, what's everybody else in the world eating? And so we dove into researching common blends from around the world, and one of our bestsellers is called Zug. It's got all the fun cumin, cardamom, caraway, coriander, mirage pepper. It's delicious. How do you use these spices? Like, if you're not used to that, yes. what would be a good introduction? Start with chicken if you eat chicken or start with your roasted vegetables. Almost any of these you could toss on either one of those to get a sense of it. Put it on before you cook and then at the end you can add a little more for a little bunch of flavor. Here's Tuscan, so that's yeah. Italian. Yeah. Midnight and, uh, red sounds ooh, exciting. It is. It's southwest fajita kind of flavor. It has chipotle mecco in it. And then if people like a little more heat, we have something called kick and cajun that bumps it up with some cayenne in there. So, You've got some customers. I don't uh, want to... Uh, you know what? It looks like they're enjoying a sample, and I'll pop over there if they need anything real quick. Yep, our top three sellers are the roasted garlic, which has sun-dried tomato and roasted bell pepper in it. goes on potatoes and dips. We also have a range of salt-free blends, which is really nice because why lose flavor just because you can't use salt? Super. Yeah. So if you were to, I mean, first of all, I think it would make a lovely gift. Oh, thank you. Where do you get the herbs? Put them in whole, and then I grind them myself for the, so you get that pop of freshness. Like my onion, parsley, garlic comes from California. My teletrae black pepper from Brazil. So it really comes from all over the place, depending on who has the... Especially for making things like the Zug, it has something called Mirage Pepper in there that comes from Turkey. So I get it from a supplier who gets it from his cousin in Turkey. So, Fantastic. Okay, and the name of this booth is? Saratoga Spicery. So I wondered if you'd have a few minutes so you could tell me about what you do here. It's called Black Love's Cookies? Yes. What makes your cookies extra special? So what makes them extra special is... I use my own recipe for each cookie. Do you? I, I like YouTube, what makes the cookie great. I took a little bit of this, a little bit of that, added some things I like, and boom, we got Black Love Cookies. All the cookies got a fun names, so like I call the cookie the Slim Shady because it has peanut butter morsels and mini M&Ms. The M&M, the rapper name is Slim Shady, so it's kind of play on that, so yeah. <laughs> Okay, so Bernie Mac. So Bernie Mac, it's an Oreo cheesecake cookie. So it's like kind of like a milk and like cookie type situation. 
one of his more famous jokes like a milk and cookies joke. So I took that milk and cookies joke and called it Bernie Mac because it's like an Oreo cream cookie. <laughs> and then shake your bun bun. It was supposed to be shake your bon bon like Cinnabon, yeah. but autocorrect changed it to bun, and I noticed <laughs> it late, so I just stuck with it. But it's a cinnamon roll cookie, so it's like a cinnamon bun cookie wrapped in it, so that's why you got to shake your bun bun. Bad Nana Jamma is a banana pudding cookie. I took the Nana from banana and just kind of, you know, gave it something fun. So you got Bad Nana Jamma. Beyonce? So Beyonce is one of my favorite female artists, or favorite artists in general. Her last album before Renaissance was called Lemonade. So I did a lemon cream cookie. And <laughs> this is great. How do you think leprechaun? Because we use like uh, the Lucky Charm marshmallows, and we got the leprechaun on the box. So we put uh, leprechaun, like uh, Lucky Charm marshmallows, into a cookie with white chocolate chips, and that's where we get the leprechaun from. We actually made it pink instead of green because people would think it was cannabis infused because it was green. Oh. So we changed the color so people wouldn't have that that green association to the cookie. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> well, there's Grand Street and the Lucky Three, Empire State, Empire State of Mind. They're all wonderful. Thank Are you, you a thank chef you. originally? Absolutely not. I was working. I was I was a store manager doing retail. I got injured, had to get surgery. I was sidelined with crushes for eight weeks. A friend gifted me a mixer for Christmas. So I was making brownies. I'm good at making brownies. So I just wanted to experiment a little bit more. We just give people a chance to try some different ones. And You're wonderful. Where do you bake them? At home or you have a shop? At home. Well, cookies are great, especially during the holidays. Absolutely. So what would you suggest if somebody wanted to get a selection of your cookies? So if we want to stay in the holiday theme, I would say... It's tough because I do make like the pie cookies. Like I make a sweet potato pie cookie. I make a pumpkin pie cookie. I make the butter, the banana pudding. But I also make like a mint fudge cookie because you know mint. I associate that with the holiday time. I have a snickerdoodle cookie. You know that's a classic. And I would say I would do my situation cookie. It's a triple chocolate M M&M and M cookie. But we get like the red and green M&M's close to Christmas to kind of get a Christmas colors with it. So it's amazing. What fun! Are you here every Saturday? I'm here every Saturday. And I'll also be here on Sundays throughout the holiday uh, weekends. Yeah, the Christmas Until market. Christmas, yes. Yeah, so I'll be here for the Christmas market's house. I like well. this one. It looks like a, like a little shirt. Yes, it's my wife sweater. does decorated cookies and some cozy sweaters. The oh, kick I off the cozy season. Black love cookies. Yes. Okay, thank you. Happy holidays to you. This makes you hungry, doesn't oh. it? <laughs> Rum cakes. Hi. Hi. And your name is? Danielle from Goodway Gourmet Bakery. Fantastic. And you are in Troy, New York. We are located in Troy, New York. Oh, great. How did you start making these cakes? The rum cakes are about 13 years old. The bakery's been in business for about 40 years, but the rum cakes are product of our head baker who's from the Bahamas, and they've become extremely popular all over. There's various kinds here. There's, um, there's what? What is this? Coconut butter. What's Malibu? Malibu is our crushed pineapple cinnamon coconut. That's actually my personal favorite. It's delicious. Chocolate. Chocolate's easy. Chocolate, I get. Yep. Banana rum, I we get. We have ripe banana. We have a Caribbean flavor, and we have black raspberry. And we also make our rum cake uh, and gluten-free. No kidding. Oh, cool. Caribbean rum, 
Oh my gosh. Oh, this is wonderful. So you're here every... Every Saturday, um, we are at the Farmer's Market. Um, we're at various locations around the Capital District, and you're welcome to stop in where we bake at to pick up the rum cake. Where is it? Um, we bake out of Redemption Christian Academy. You can just walk in and ask for a rum cake. Good way, rum cakes made in Troy, New York. Thanks so much. Thank you. Wishing you all a wonderful holiday season. This has been Andrea Cunliffe for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm not going to lie, that interview kind of made me hungry. <laughs> I love the market. <laughs> that recording is from 2022. See a current vendor listing at troymarket.org. Just as a reminder, the Troy Farmer's Market is in its winter location inside the Troy Atrium, November through April, Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Nicole Damopolito. And I'm Vinny Damopolito. We want to thank all of our volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode are Mark Dunley, Willie Terry, Cena Basilla Hickey, and Andrea Cunliffe, and your co-hosts. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Uh, we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email at hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platforms. We appreciate you for listening. Until next time.